Matthew chapter 4, we will be looking at verses 1 to 11 together. Again, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, we are reading verses 1 through 11, and it says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. My affection for sports has been uh, very well documented here, and well documented, as you know, in my sermons. I am kind of a one-trick pony when it comes to illustrations. They usually revolve around sports, and I do apologize, but I have mentioned uh, that my poor wife, even, has no uh, off-season in our home, for I watch and consume uh, nearly everything uh, that involves a ball, you know, or that involves some kind of competition, uh, and this even extends into uh, sports or times on the sports calendar where they don't even count, okay? So things like the preseason in football, which is now perhaps a thing of the past, but still is a, a thing in football, the preseason, though they didn't have it during, during COVID uh, this year. That extends into, you know, spring training uh, in baseball, it extends into uh, the preseason in basketball. You know, these games that, that are still on TV but don't really count for the record, don't really count for uh, the, you know, the history books of of the team, wins and losses and, and so forth. This even extends into exhibitions or, or charity matches, you know, charity golf tournaments, charity tennis matches. Uh, I watch it all. I just, I'm, I'm a sick, sick man, okay? So you, you can pray for me. Um, but I, I also mentioned that, you know, even like during COVID, uh, it was great to be a Marlins fan because uh, they were showing replays, if you remember, on Fox Sports, and they only showed the wins, you know, and those are few for the Marlins, but it felt great to turn on the TV and always see the Marlins, you know, winning. That was a great, great time uh, for me. But uh, no matter how big a fan I might be of sports, there is undoubtedly, uh, even for those of us as fans, a difference between the real thing, you know, between a playoff game, for instance, that might happen this afternoon, you know, in the NFL, uh, and then the, those that don't count. There is a difference between the real thing and then the exhibition, the real thing and 
the preseason. And I say that because many people at many times have approached this passage in Matthew chapter 4. They have approached the temptation of Jesus and, and, and seen it as sort of an exhibition, seen it as a, a preseason, if you will. It, it sounds great that Jesus was tempted. It, it looks to be the case, but was it really a temptation for him? That's always been the question. Was it actually possible for Jesus to sin, or was this just a a dress rehearsal? Was he just going through the motions, getting the reps, if you will, in spring training or uh, the preseason for our sake? For our sake. Was he actually put in a tough spot by the devil? Or, or again, is that not possible for someone like Jesus, the, the Son of God? How does that work? Well, to interpret that passage this way would be, would be wrong, and it's wrong for two reasons, for two reasons. And the two things that we see here, the two reasons, are first, because of the Messiah's reality. The Messiah's reality, which we've now been talking about for a number of weeks since Advent. And then secondly, the Messiah's role. The reality of the Messiah and the role of the Messiah. Again, we've talked about this before, but we can't diminish the reality of Jesus in entirely human flesh with no exceptions. No exceptions. That again, it's tempting to think of Jesus as, as putting on a costume, as playing a, a role. But this is something that has been debunked or, 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 or fought against from the very earliest days of the church. That the church, if, you're, if you've been attending Dr. Copan's class, for instance, in Sunday school, that the church, the New Testament church and the church that followed, from its very earliest days had to fight against this temptation to just see Jesus as one who wore a costume, as one who looked like man but didn't really experience all the frailties and all the uh, temptations of man. And so some of the earliest councils in the church spent a lot of time fleshing this out, literally, literally fleshing it out, that Jesus was God in entirely human flesh with no exceptions, temptation included. That's why a lot of the statements that come out of those early councils uh, feature these very experiential words or these existential words that speak of his physicality. We even hear it uh, in places like the Apostles' Creed, which was not birthed from a council, but was an early doctrinal formulation in the church. We hear that even in the Apostles' Creed when we recite it here many weeks in our, in our service. But you can hear similar language in uh, the Nicene Creed, or particularly the Nicene and uh, in, in Constantin Constantinopolitan Creed, okay, which came from the Council of 381. Hear this. It says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, True God of true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made. Then hear now this physical language. Who for us men, 
and women, by the way, and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. And he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. And he suffered and he was buried. And the third day, he rose again. So you hear that language. And again, we hear that in a number of places, a number of creeds throughout the uh, life cycle of the church. But again, this was a persistent and important uh, sticking point for the earliest of Christians. And it remains so today because if the Messiah was anything less than perfectly human, then the salvation that he affected for us would also then be deficient. And so the testimony of the earliest church, the testimony here of the gospel writers is of the Messiah's human reality. And we don't just see it in, in doctrinal formulations like, like creeds, and we don't just see it even in the doctrinal formulations of the New Testament, so places like in the writings of Paul where he, he puts meat, if you will, on the bones of the theological structure, but we also see it, if you remember, in even the way people react to Jesus in the Gospels. I mentioned last week how, you know, the Gospels are not modern biographies, so they, they leave a lot out. But in what we have been given in the Gospels, don't you always marvel at the reaction of people to Jesus? They're always shocked by what? <clears throat> how ordinary he is, Right? How ordinary he is. He hungers, he, he thirsts, he grows tired. Think of people saying, isn't this the, the carpenter's son? Isn't this Jesus from, from Nazareth? I mean, can anything good come from Nazareth? You can see the shock to his ordinariness and to, again, his, his simplicity if you will, that he wasn't this bulletproof hero. He wasn't this muscled and chiseled, you know, Marvel comic hero, but he was subject to all the limitations of man. And we see that here in his temptation, and we see it other places. Again, think of Jesus when he will be on the boat later in his ministry, and the storm comes along, and he's asleep. And so right there, you see his humanity. He's so tired, even a category, you know, three storm, let's call it, can't wake him up because he's human. But at the same time, when the storm comes and the disciples fear, he rebukes the storm with a word, and we see his deity. So fully human, fully God, and this goes hand in hand, and that's something we have to always preserve, always keep together. And yes, it's mystery. Yes, it's ultimately miracle. But it's also for us very, very meaningful. That again, he came to effect a real salvation for real people. And we see this again in the temptation account. Notice how Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He's led by the Spirit. He doesn't concoct this you know, faux scenario and then call the cameras over to see him go through the motions. He's led into a moment of temptation similar to how you and I can be led. Similar to how you and I can be led into temptation. And what I don't mean when I say led is that God is responsible for our sin or that God unduly tempts us and kind of you know, dangles a carrot and stick 
before us, but we do have to acknowledge that everything happens under God's sovereign watch. Everything happens under his sovereign gaze so that we are led through circumstances, we are led through relationships, we are led through events to moments of temptation in our life. That God has, again, in his mysterious providence, I do not claim to know all the answers, (laughs) or how it exactly works. But God in his mysterious providence does allow Satan to roam free for a time, though he's on a leash. But he does reign free for a time, and because of that, we are subject to temptation. We are subject to, again, moments of trial that we, even as the children of God, are subject to testing. To testing. But our hope, of course, is that in those moments of testing, we have somebody alongside of us. We have somebody with us, namely, God himself. We have Emmanuel, God with us. And this God can relate to us. He can be a present help for us. He can stand alongside of us because he himself, too, was tempted. He knows what it's like. He knows the difficulties, and he then gives us the example of faithfulness. For he was tempted and yet did not sin. Did not sin. Hebrews reminds us in chapter 4 of Hebrews, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the reality of Jesus. He experienced the throes, the pains, the difficulties, the temptations of this earthly life just like you and I, and yet did not sin. He was perfect for us. And so we also see then in this text this role that he plays for us then. If we have the reality of the Messiah, the reality of Jesus, of God in human flesh, we also then see the role that Jesus plays for us, the role of the Messiah. And we particularly see here this substitutionary role, if you will. The substitutionary role of the Messiah Again, if you go back to my uh, preseason sports kind of idea, if you know, particularly like in football, what usually happens is that let's say there's four preseason games. Well, the first two or three are usually mostly played by the backups. They're played by those who are hoping to make the team and sort of trying out. Or again, they're played by... Uh, the backups, those who won't get a lot of reps in the regular season. This again happens in football. You see it uh, in, in baseball, in, in, in spring training, right? But what happens then is that as that last game, the fourth game draws near, or as the end of spring training draws near, you see the starters, the stars, if you will, now begin to play more. They play more. And in that, in that, transition in that ending time of the preseason, you begin to kind of see, oh, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is how the offense runs when the starters are in. This is how the, you know, uh, 
This is how the Marlins pitch when their ace is on the hill. This is what it's supposed to look like. Ah, now I see it's being put all together. Well, this is, a, in, a, in, a, in a strange way, I know, again, all my illustrations break down at some point, but in a strange way, this is exactly what Jesus is doing here, that all who went before Jesus, we don't want to call them backups, but were, were types, were types. They were shadows of the real thing, for all who went before Jesus at some level failed in what God had commissioned them to do and who God commissioned them to be. And the two primary examples that we see in Scripture, the two primary types that we see in Scripture are of Adam and Israel. Adam and Israel. Think about that for a moment. So Adam, too, encountered Satan when Adam was the representative of humanity. Adam encountered not, uh, didn't encounter Satan in the wilderness. He encountered him in a garden, as we know. Although Jesus will also later encounter Satan in a garden, right? Before he goes to the cross, the garden of Gethsemane. But Adam encounters Satan also as the representative of humanity when he is in the garden. And he is also tempted by Satan, just like Jesus is here, to distrust the word of God to distrust the word of God, to distrust the plan and the providence and the purposes of God in favor of his appetites and in favor of uh, Satan's interpretation of God's actions, if you will. Think about that. Think about in the garden. What does Satan say to, really to Eve first, but to Adam and Eve by extension? Did God really say you can't eat from any... You can't eat the fruit in the garden. Did God really say? It's casting doubt on on the word of God. It's casting doubt on the goodness of God, the plan of God. Think about his words now here to Jesus. If you truly are the son of God, then fill in the blank. But in both instances, what we see is that, again, it's Satan calling them to doubt the intentions of God and the goodness of his Uh, of his purposes. With Adam, it was questioning God's restrictions. But again, here with Jesus, it's all so similar. You're hungry. You're hungry. Well, where is God's provision for you? You're hungry. Where is God? Why has he put you in this place? Why has he left you hungry? Where is God's provision? Where is his goodness? Where is his heart? You're the son of God. Do something about it. Do you see the, the breach he is trying to create if it, if it were all possible, even in the Godhead? Do you see the breach he's trying to create between God and humanity when he did so with Adam? But yet, does he not do the same thing with us? And are these not questions that we sometimes, too, ask? Hasn't this past year, perhaps, 2020, a crazy year, caused us to ask those kinds of questions even more? Where is God's provision for me? Where is God's goodness for me? What is his purpose? Where is God? Why doesn't he show up? But again, what we see with Jesus here is that he reminds us that man doesn't live on our stuff alone. Man doesn't live on our prosperity alone. It's hard to say with empty bellies, but we don't even live on 
the physical sustenance, right, of this world. We live squarely on God's word and his plan for us. And his plan is one that will never leave us or forsake us. Never. It will never run from us. And we see Jesus make that plain by answering Satan's temptations with Scripture. Answering the doubts he tries to put upon uh, the Word of God, he answers them with the Word of God itself. With the Word of God itself. And so right here we see then Jesus uh, succeeding, if you will, in a way that Adam never did. This is why uh, Paul speaks of Jesus as the second Adam, the greater Adam, who when faced with temptation, when representing humanity, when face to face with the evil one, succeeded where the first Adam fell. If by the first Adam came sin, then by the second Adam, Paul says, comes salvation. Romans 5 puts it this way, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so Jesus, in his role, he fulfills what Adam could never do. He succeeds where Adam failed. But again, notice how the word of God that Jesus chooses to employ against Satan in all three instances. So if you have your Bibles, if you have the bulletin, if you look in verse 4, if you look in verse 7, and if you look in verse 10, all of the responses of Jesus to Satan's attempt to doubt the word of God are taken from the word of God. Christ's response is from the Word of God, and it's specifically from a very small section in the Word of God. It's from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Christ quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. He takes from a book in the Pentateuch, one of the five books of Moses, a book of the law, and he particularly takes from a book of the law written when Israel was also in the wilderness. In the wilderness. Notice that. And so it's here then that we begin to see that again, Jesus and his role isn't just the second Adam, isn't just the greater Adam, isn't just the true Adam. He's also the greater Israel. He is the true Israel. That if you remember in the Old Testament, Israel is often spoken of in sonship language in sonship language, that Israel is spoken of this way, and so are its kings. Think of like King David, for instance, who we heard from earlier in our time of confession. And all of these uh, people, all of these institutions that were in place were ultimately called to be a kingdom of priests, to represent God to the nations, were called to be a light to the dark world around it. But again, Israel, like Adam, faltered, faltered, fell, wasn't able to live up to that role. But again, what we see here is where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. He succeeds, and we see it vividly in not just the fact that he quotes from Deuteronomy, 
And he connects himself, again, to that time in the wilderness when Israel was also looking to God for what? Do you remember? Bread. Remember? They too were hungry. They too were doubting God's provision. They wanted to go back to Egypt where there was, you know, the buffet. The buffets. And they have to do what? They have to look to the word of God. And what does he provide? Does he provide bread? Not how they expected it. He provides manna. He provides manna in the wilderness. They were tempted to run back to Egypt, to run to other gods, to distrust the word of the Lord until the word of the Lord shows up and provides manna, provides heavenly food for them, provides sustenance for them. But we also see this in how Jesus is connected to the story of Israel in the way Matthew writes his own gospel. Think about that. Think about the passages that we've already gone through in some of the previous sermons. Where does Jesus come out of in chapter 2, verse 15? Go back and look in your Bibles if you want. In chapter 2, verse 15, it says, And he, this is Joseph, rose and took the child, Jesus, and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Those were words that were spoken previously of Israel. And now he speaks them here, the gospel writer, in connection to Jesus. So he comes out of Egypt. And then where, if you remember last week, does Matthew rush ahead full steam to get to into chapter 3? It's the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus. That just like Israel, after fleeing Egypt, where did Israel go? Well, they were baptized, we're told, in the Red Sea. They came through the waters of the Red Sea. The Son of God came up out of the waters, and so too here, Jesus, after coming out of Egypt, he's led now to the waters of baptism. The waters of baptism. And then was led, like Israel, where? To the wilderness. To the wilderness. Again, tempted in his hunger to forsake God. Tempted to test the Lord, his plan, his patience, his methods, in all the same way that Israel was tempted. Tempted to bow down to another. But again, where Adam faltered, where Israel faltered, Jesus succeeds. He succeeds. And that's helpful because that's also then applied to us. Where we falter, where we uh, fail to be human the way we're supposed to be. We prayed, again, our confession that God has made us, our limbs, and all of these things ultimately to be instruments for his will and for for good. But when we falter and fail to live up to that expectation the same way that Adam did who went before us, the same way that Israel did who went before us, Jesus succeeds. He succeeds. For haven't we been tempted to do just the same thing? Haven't in our hunger, and it might not be physical hunger, but in our hunger for, you know, our, our lives to look differently, haven't in our hunger to have a different lot in life, haven't we t- been tempted to forsake God? To look to other things then to define us? 
Haven't we ever tried the Lord's patience, doubted his plan, questioned his methods? Haven't we ever bowed down and served other gods, the gods of the nations, the gods of those around us? Of course we have. Of course we still do. But that's where this reminder, the temptation of Jesus comes in. His perfection. His success in place of our failure. That is what remains our only hope. That remains the rock. That remains the foundation upon which we stand and upon which we move our lives forward. It's his righteousness, his performance, which are ours by faith, for he truly is our Messiah. In a moment, we'll sing this song together, but I want to I quote just one verse from it now. It says it so beautifully. It says this, What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, my freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. You see, the temptation of Jesus reminds us that it's not our success. It's not our triumph over temptation. But it's Christ, it's in Christ alone. Yet not I, but through Christ in me remains our only hope, remains the sole basis upon which we find acceptance before the Lord and favor in this life and the ability to move forward triumphantly by his grace, even into uncertain times like we just came from and that we will undoubtedly go back into in 2021. It's the, it's the success of Jesus for us once and for all. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its complexity. We thank you for its beauty as we can see even in the structures how it's so intricately woven together, how one story and one saga and one book builds upon another, that these were all intentional designs by you, that the world would have the way paved for the coming of the anointed one. Lord, we think even last week as we looked in uh, Matthew 3 and we heard John, that voice who came to prepare the way of the Lord to make, to make room for him, that we might accept him. Well, so too we see that in your scriptures, that the way was being prepared for the ultimate one to come. That even in the beginning, in the garden, you had plans. That even in the wilderness of your people in Israel, you had plans that all of it would lead ultimately to the coming of Jesus who would fulfill all prophecy, who would fulfill all righteousness, who would do for us and do for all who trust him by faith what we can never do for ourselves. And so, Lord, as we now find our, our lives perhaps uncertain or we are kind of floundering and wondering uh, just what you're up to, may this be a reminder that you are doing great things, that you have been building your church, that you have been the architect, if you will, of salvation from ages past, and we see it all come together perfectly and beautifully in Christ. 
And that is a Christ that is now ours by faith. We too now are part of that story. We too are now part of the people of God because of what Jesus, the true Adam, the true Israel, the righteous one, the Messiah has done for us. So we thank you, Lord, for that reality. We thank you for your grace. And we ask that you would continue to bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.